Welcome to Machine Learning. This week, I spent a lot of time taking a course on DataCamp on marketing and data churn. And uh, I don't know which was more insightful, the process of figuring out, predicting whether a telecom customer would churn or discovering and rethinking about the impact that the millennials, the 18 to 24 year old, or in some case, I would say maybe up to 34 year olds are having on uh, today's markets. And you think about how does certain events affect people? Well, uh, we know that there were, that uh, 9-11 affected a large number of young people as they watched the uh, events associated with that uh, catastrophe. And it affected um, the their views on the movie, the type of movies that they would see, uh, how they would view the world. Now, it's interesting that the millennials in the 2008 uh, subprime meltdown that affected millions of people, millions of people lost their homes. And um, I haven't actually studied the data on that to give any, any uh, statistics, but uh, from what my recall on that was is that there were many mortgages um, where uh, due to uh, the contracts between the mortgages and house and the and the owners they and the the banks they lost their homes and uh, and so there was this I remember that uh, I was in a very uh, very isolated and safe job so I really wasn't you know concerned during 2008 but uh, other people were telling me that you know that the economy was really tough and uh, and then I started to pay attention in 2008 what was going on and uh, unemployment was rising Lots of layoffs were occurring. And so the millennials went through a period where uh, a lot of them lost jobs. And, and uh, so they went and worked. Uh, uh, they went lived with their, their parents. Some of them had student loans. Actually, quite a few had student loans. Uh, I think the average was about $30,000 in student loans. And... Uh, and so they, they didn't, that there was a large sector of millennials that were single that didn't marry, uh, hadn't been married yet. And, and so that, that percentage was like 80%. So you have this huge population of single people who um, live with their parents, that have debt, and that have lost a, you know, lost a job. 
and uh, that group today is uh, one of the largest uh, largest demographics in fact they say that that group is larger than uh, the baby boomers so that, that the group is going to affect your churn customer churn and when I was studying the telecom uh, data I was surprised that the largest group uh, in the telecom or teleco data set was this month-to-month -month contracts and so I started looking at these month-to-month -month contracts and why the consumers were buying these month-to-month -month contracts so you need to you need to do your forensics work before you actually start studying the data because um, you have to have a kind of a framework and uh, they, you know they say well you can't be biased blah 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 but you know uh, the world works on bias and in, in other words we we have to have a theory in order to make the data make sense and so the theory is is that economic models do affect people's uh, decision to churn and that's the number one thing that I saw with uh, the ad when I was doing the analysis on the ad was that uh, whether or not a, a consumer would buy a uh, open another bank account and that was based on the consumer price index so if if the economy was doing well and uh, you know, they their perspective their expectations of of, uh, of being able to repay debt or to save money were strong then they would open account another account and uh, and I found that that was a, you know just kind of this little fundamental feature that was a very strong indicator of whether or not uh, they would open the account well now in uh, in the uh, in the telecom example, there were a lot of there the if you look at the number of features which they had like no internet service or internet service, uh, streaming movies, streaming uh, TV series, and then you looked at the number the highest group for churn what it was it was no internet service no data no uh, media streaming no TV streaming and a two-year contract so that was the that was the highest group of probability of churn it was like at uh, uh, stratified at 99% uh, <laughs> so almost guaranteed that that group uh, would dispose of that plan, the two-year plan, and then they would churn out. So then you could look at the demographics on uh, the 10-year, and, and it kind of looked like a bowl uh, where you had you know, large sectors of people that uh, had churned that were um, in that early part of the 10-year, like between one to to 10 years and so that's going to where the highest percentage would probably be in that first year so 
um, the month-to-month -month caught my attention. And so as I looked at that, um, it's I read a number of articles that said that the millennials were moving to a stand-alone uh, internet service on a month-to-month -month basis so they could just uh, get, you know, internet service for one month, pay it, no commitments, no upfront uh, uh, charges. Um, and then, you know, the question I had in my mind was, well, if, if that's true, if there's this huge group of people that are moving to standalone internet service, why isn't Wi-Fi free and media streaming free? So then I looked at uh, uh, carriers that were providing basically binge watching where you're not getting uh, charged more money for your data plan because you're using consuming more data and I was surprised to see that T-Mobile uh, was offering a, a program where you have basically for certain uh, media sources I think uh, Netflix and HBO Netflix and uh, Hulu uh, basically provide a, a unlimited media streaming as a result of COVID. So COVID, you know, more people were consuming more data and, and uh, watching more videos and series. And, and so that consumption of that media was higher. And, uh, and so, you know, reducing down the churn would would mean to offer uh, unlimited uh, media streaming, and they they were offering that. So I thought that was interesting how they responded to the data that uh, that they were seeing, and maybe that didn't make sense. But I don't see how the extra data is actually costing more unless they have uh, third party groups where they have are charging more for the data consumption almost like a you know, electricity utility company where the more you consume the more you're charged um, and so I feel like that uh, you know greed is a can be work against you also it can make things too complicated it can make uh, it can uh, create barriers for purchase the price can be too high you know and uh, business seeks to maximize profits but at the same time they also have to meet customer needs and so that that ability to meet the needs of a changing customer uh, is is, uh, is critical and and the and consumers are seeing that the customer is changing and the they're moving to a more genuine uh, type of consumer where they're specialists in in social media. They know a lot about different cooking. Uh, one of what's interesting is uh, I read this other article talking about um, millennials, you know, fo uh, fascination with beauty, and that they are more likely to buy something rather than a beauty product in store. So they want to look at the products, sample them, and so they're going to the store uh, to make these purchases and they and but at the same time the newer Millennials are more willing to make that purchase 
on the internet. I think they said about 17% would make those purchases on the internet. And so, uh, yeah, if you're interested, you could just query that up on millennials and beauty beauty products. But one of their most popular uh, companies that they buy products from is uh, Bed Bath and Beyond. So you know, I was thinking, well, that's a that's interesting. If you're an investor, you should be watching uh, market trends, and and definitely a market trend would be. Uh, the millennials buying pattern so you're going to be offering less products that have uh, long-term contract commitments and you're going to be offering more stand alone uh, agreement contracts and products and so that's going to definitely affect smartphones and I was thinking the other day about how uh, we have lots of different um, companies now that are competing in the smartphone arena um, and they they're not connected uh, directly to a particular technology and what I mean by that is that the technology itself is uh, digital still it it um, can either run on the device as a standalone application or it can run on the cloud and more applications now are being driven off of cloud and run on the device but there hasn't been a company yet that's built a very cheap device uh, let's say in the range of forty dollars, thirty to forty dollars, where um, you just run all your applications over a Windows server, uh, client server. So in other words, it worked worked like the old days of X Windows, which I think is going to be a new paradigm is that you'd build your application, deploy it to the server, and then the server generates the uh, different frames and user interfaces that the consumer experiences. And uh, then, then, if you did that, you would then build a universal uh, platform the computer is the network and you're you're running all your applications on the server uh, through internet or through TCP IP so your your bandwidth consumption is going to definitely uh, increase but the number of applications that you could consume would be uh, growing exponentially and the number of consumers that could utilize the resources should be able to be in the billions so now you've reached the barrier that uh, most technology companies run into is that they have millions of users that are downloading and running their applications 
and instead now you could move to billions of consumers using uh, applications on the cloud. And they're fully functional applications. They run just as well as the applications do on the client, but they're not um, they're not run on the client. They're run on the cloud under under the huge servers and hardware resources that exist on the cloud. And uh, and then they might be paying uh, you know small amounts of money each month to consume these products. And so there would be a huge race to invest more money into building applications that the larger group would be willing to pay. Because if you had a, if you had a, a, a 1 billion people paying $5 a month for usage of unlimited services, media, um, applications that they can store their data on there, uh, corporations, individuals, you name it. That would still be $5 billion a month that you're earning or $60 billion a year. And uh, you would have been the largest corporation in the world. So I know that there's uh, companies that have to be con contemplating this move because it, uh, it makes sense in my mind because we now have the technology uh, like the Bionic Man, but we now have the technology to build a very uh, powerful user experience by usage of the cloud and a very cheap device. And so if consumers are, are moving to the standalone uh, payment plan, where they want to pay month by month, why not allow them to have a very cheap device with a very rich set of features that allow um, unlimited access to applications and media for very low prices and um, allow them to pay on a month-to-month -month basis. And because you lower that entry-level cost, you can now tap into the four billion people at the bottom. That can, and then you have this huge race by uh, many different vendors or suppliers to provide cheap terminal devices or cheap devices that um, will allow subscription to cloud service. So then the people on the cloud service are charging for access to their application and software for the, the terminal. And uh, and then consumers are, are, uh, are browsing through the wide range of different applications that they can run uh, and utilize on their device, whether it's an iPhone or an Android or an iPad or a Surface, um, you move you move away from that that uh, differentiation and move into more of a global uh, a global application pool where companies are are posting and putting their their uh, cloud applications um, into the the terminal so that it can emulate back and forth. And, 
we've had this emulation for a long time. You've had virtual machines, and you've had you've had uh, Docker, and, and you've had uh, uh, Parallels, and all these these devices. They basically work similar to an X window, where you have a, a server and a client and an emulator, and they emulate to a window, and they can emulate from multiple devices, like you can run in coherence, and you can have multiple um, operating systems, like I have a Mac OS, and I have uh, Windows, and I can I can interact between my Mac Windows and my, uh, my Microsoft Windows, my Windows 10, uh, seamlessly, and this, the same is true with the cloud-based uh, applications as companies put make a, uh, bigger moves to provide more uh, functionality to the larger group, and uh, and then you know we're, you're looking now to a traditional programming paradigms where things were expensive to develop, code was expensive to develop, programmers were expensive to hire, but these things are all changing because now the hardware is uh, moving to the next stage of exponential growth. You're seeing the introduction to AI and code generation and code translation. So you're taking you're taking uh, machine code and you're translating from one set of language into another. Uh, and we do that all the time with Angular, for example. We transpile from Angular code down into ES5 or ES6, depending on uh, what the browsers can support. You know, a few years ago, I was looking at uh, the new ES6, which is now old hat, but and it, uh, it didn't have. It only had 25% support by the browsers, and so. Uh, that was not a viable option to not transpile down. So uh, you'd want to transpile down to ES5, which had a larger uh, support base. And I really think that uh, web is dead. I'm mean, kind of arguing that the web browser technology is dead. And, and uh, that really what you're wanting to see now is things that are more voice activated, that, uh, that give you uh, snippets of information that you find interesting. People are not reading full articles. In fact, people aren't reading articles at all, for the most part, uh, that are non-engineers. And they're, uh, they're consuming lots of information on media. So YouTube has been a, a huge source of uh, information dissemination. And uh, they're also getting a lot of their information verbally now through um, Google Home, Alexa, Siri. And Siri is still really a disappointment in my mind because you ask Siri specific questions that should be able to answer. And it says, I found this on the internet. And that's just not acceptable. It should be giving you answers like an expert would give, more like Sophia can do where they can condense and summarize the information and tell you uh, what the what you want to know 
and uh, and then if you want to know more in detail you can tell it to elaborate and uh, it can read you more detail and those are the things that we're going to expect from the devices and so I think that uh, you know as far as interaction is concerned uh, cloud makes a lot of sense I know a lot of uh, young millennials are, are very sold on cloud technology and, and the functionality and features that exist on the cloud and they don't really like to have to think about the complexity of configuration and, and integration that you would have to face if you were working in non-cloud environments. And then the idea of also the cloud has this huge hardware pool that is scalable. Now the one thing that cloud has been um, a barrier in is that it is not necessarily cheaper. And my proposition is, is that the company that can uh, bring on more customers, even though the cost of the infrastructure would be higher, they would cost probably billions of dollars or tens of billions of dollars to build the infrastructure, uh, that, the, that the platform itself for the average consumer would be less because of the buying patterns and the consumers buying patterns and so moving to cheaper models to offer more make more sense and uh, the companies that are trying to uh, keep things proprietary by operating system or by application uh, will will be eventually replaced by this this new more cheaper model and um, when I say cheaper, it's actually what the millennials are expe expecting. Is they're expecting to have more for less. They want the genuine experience. They don't want to be hyped up on marketing. They want to have <clears throat> they want to have things that are are very good and very unique, and um, and they and they have certain things that they're very fascinated by like beauty and technology and I read one in one case where many of them were thinking about only staying at their company for 10 years and also another pattern was that they were uh, planning to many were discontent and ready to leave their job because they were not given the technology to do their work and the other one was they feel like working in a nine-to-five cubicle was uh, kind of an older way of doing things that they wanted to have more flexible schedules uh, they want to have friends at the office and they want to make it uh, more uh, exciting to work at and uh, and I did see that environment and it is intriguing when uh, you work with millennials that they do like the social aspect and the interactions uh, but at the same time it, it does have its disadvantage because they are single they don't get married they do talk about marriage uh, but they do play a lot of video games and they're highly consumed by uh, their own self-interest a lot of the millennials are educated they're high, getting higher paid jobs a lot of the older millennials 
are in management positions now and they make a lot of money and so they do represent a large sector of the consumer market that uh, companies need to pay attention to and, and react to because if you're not reacting properly to those uh, trends and the consumer expectations then when companies that do come along there won't be this sense of loyalty to a brand they will shift over so uh, we've seen some of this with Tesla uh, and I was asking the question to my friend I said uh, why are so many people willing to spend a hundred thousand dollars plus for an electric car that has a range of 300 miles when you know that car's range should be at least a thousand miles and its price should be no more than a you know a Mercedes at uh, sixty thousand um, dollars for a luxury vehicle and if this is not considered a luxury vehicle then it should be about the price of the Toyotas in the thirty to forty thousand dollar range but now you're paying uh, up to three times the amount of money who is by who is buying these cars and why did Tesla move into uh, the number one market capitalization company in the world and uh, the the answer is is it has to be the Millennials the Millennials were um, captivated by the stylish look and feel of the Tesla vehicles. There's rapid acceleration from zero to 60 in under five seconds. Um, and acceptable range because a lot of them, a lot of the millennials commuted uh, within 30 miles of where they lived. And, and then they didn't own mortgages so that they had, they had uh, disposable income to buy an expensive car. And I did see that trend with some millennials that I do know that they would spend um, a lot of money on a very expensive car like a Lexus, a brand new Lexus, but really not have much in terms of assets and savings. And they, and they lived in their home um, with their parents. And so that was an interesting trend that I saw early. And uh, I'm not saying that all the millennials fit that classification or categorization, generalization, because they don't like to be generalized. That's what they were. <coughs> One of their pet peeves is they don't like to be generalized. <coughs> but they are consuming lots of internet on YouTube. They like to, uh, it would be kind of like the Bohemian group. They're, they're wealthy. Um, they like the life experiences like paragliding, hang gliding, um, small, uh, small living, teeny houses, uh, being close to nature, living in tree houses, uh, skiing, uh, and they have a strong desire to stay in good shape they want to be out mountain biking and uh, hiking and things like that and um, 
So uh, I think that you'll see that advertisement starts to change to meet kind of those those needs and that freedom that that the millennials are seeking. And also, it's going to have to um, adjust to their insecurities too. I said that uh, a lot of the millennials are are wanting to leave their jobs because of lack of recognitions. So companies are going to need to um, uh, have more recognition programs. And they said even if they were given like $150 extra a year in recognition bonuses, that they would stay. So that's a pretty fragile ego. And, um, and yet companies think that the that you know that the only way that they're going to attract talent is higher salaries which is true because there's lots of competition for uh, skilled resource there's a shortage in skilled resource and uh, the cost to acquire that talent is more expensive because if they're paying one hundred and thirty thousand dollars and you're offering uh, you know eighty thousand dollars for that job why would you give up $50,000 in earning capacity to take that job. And so a lot of millennials are chasing higher salary. They're looking for, you know, to move into the uh, Silicon Valley if you're high tech and uh, into San Jose and San Diego and San Francisco areas where they're willing to pay uh, higher amounts of money. But in the same sense, the lifestyle is poor because in those areas where they're paying higher amounts of money, the cost of living is phenomenally high. Uh, you know, you could easily pay $3,000 for a one-room uh, bed uh, apartment and up to uh, $5,000 for a two- to three-bedroom apartment with a one-year contract. And also, um, you know, entry level for a home is $600,000. So there's a huge amount of money that has to be made and uh, deposited to even live in those areas. And so it's uh, you know, almost like uh, the smart and rich people are migrating to those areas. And as a result, I think people that are uh, maybe not as smart and maybe not as rich cannot survive, survive there. So you have a shortage of police officers, you have a shortage of people to take care of cooking, uh, sanitation, garbage collection, schools. And so the, all those, those jobs have to be subsidized to a certain level in order to make it uh, possible for individuals to perform those services. And so it's really crazy in some ways how uh, high tech has caused the cost of living in certain areas to just skyrocket. But yet, uh, you know, with COVID, the ability to work remote, and if this becomes more of a common uh, standard for corporations, then they will seek the smartest and most talented individuals from all over the world and they can work remote uh, for their company. And so that's why I say that this uh, building this cloud infrastructure where the uh, computer is the network, um, 
makes more sense because now you can build applications in AI that could generate lots of functions and features. Um, you can also take existing applications that have a strong uh, user base and a subscription and they could you know, pay subscriptions. But there can also be competing uh, applications and open source that are available on this cloud platform that could be made available too. And so it becomes kind of a, a supermarket for a selection of products that are, are very reasonable, that are good, um, and then let the free market decide the pricing. So if you, you know, if you have Microsoft and you have your your cloud platform products out there under this and universally acceptable to the all devices, that's the key. It has to be universally acceptable to all devices so that it's not a monopoly. And uh, and then you know you can just pick and choose and pay according to what you select. And, um, and so if there's a product that provides a spreadsheet or a word processor that uh, is free and people like it and they use it, great. But if, you know, like there's lots of investment in existing spreadsheets uh, and so forth uh, that are in Microsoft, they want to charge you know to use it then they pay for the subscription to office 365 great but uh, you know it, it just um, it takes away the computer as a network takes away the need to buy specialized hardware and then you take away the specialized hardware and the specialized operating systems and now you make it universal on the cloud, then the, the, the competition moves to the applications and the applications are competition between uh, the AI machine writing code and human beings writing code. And I believe probably in the future is that machines get better at writing code, that uh, more functionality will be code generated from machines and it'll be dynamically generated. And so there's companies that are building dynamic code generators that are responding to uh, inputs from human beings and they're writing their own code. And that's a, and it's gonna become more and more capable as machines start to learn from human beings, from open source, how to write code, you know? Uh, once it learns how to do a bubble sort, uh, why can't it then learn how to do a B-tree sort? And once it learns how to do a B-tree sort, why can't it do SQL? And once it learns how to write SQL, why can't, why can't it write its own web APIs? And once it learns how to write web APIs, why can't it write its own Angular code or Flutter code using widgets and dynamically create these user interfaces to display the data they found. So, you know, the way we do it now is so much craftsmanship. You have to, you have to learn how 
to do Web API, you have to learn how to write the code in C Sharp or Node.js. You have to uh, learn how to write your user interfaces using Swift UI or Flutter or Angular. You know, you have to learn HTML, you have to learn JavaScript. It's so huge and complex because of the greed of large corporations. Um, some of it was a standard and I think some of it was just to build infrastructure to handle all the complexity that now with the open source community they've moved to more component-based programming and object-oriented programming and machine-generated uh, code and you're going to see uh, much more functions and features that are going to be offered at relatively low cost or free. So even applications would um, become a huge proliferation. So in the future, digitally, it's, it was, it's going to be interesting as we move into an era where there's going to be so much richness in terms of data and uh, functionality. That's my prediction. And I think to move opposite of that direction would mean that uh, uh, we're moving into a world of fear and uncertainty and that's definitely something that the Millennials don't like.